Welcome back guys to the JPS Education Portal Roundtable and you are here with myself, Mackenzie as always, and the very lovely, the very British, Steve Hall. Welcome Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. I know we're talking about massing, which is a subject close to my heart. Uh, I don't know anything more that we're talking about or how it's going to go. So uh, I'm here for it. I don't know. Uh, I, I actually don't even know Mackenzie's views on it. I don't know if this was like you set me up against him. Like he has terribly different views to me. I, I don't expect he does. <laughs> I love how uncertain being around me or being on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I love that I've... Uh, You've set me up. Yeah, yeah, no. We are here to talk about massing. This is Steve's wheelhouse. This is uh, one of the t topics that I feel Steve is uh, very well equipped to discuss and share insights on. So we'll start with what is the objective when we're massing Steve? Obviously, muscle gain is the focus, but from a more physiological perspective, what are we actually trying to achieve? Cool. So yeah, I guess it's hard in the fitness industry because terms are thrown around like when i first started getting into bodybuilding it was like bulking was the term and then like massing seems to have taken over there and i don't know if that confuses people or if they think massing and bulking are different but i guess the the real thing that we're worried about there is nutritionally we're in a calorie surplus that's what we're trying to achieve we're eating above our maintenance and then uh, a mass phase is you're looking to gain weight and then the question kind of begets kind of how fast are we gaining and all those other variables but for the most part the, the biggest difference versus if you're in a, a mass phase versus any other phase is you are gaining weight you're in a calorie surplus and that's putting you in an environment that is by itself more anabolic that is one of the biggest things you can do to help yourself in assisting gaining muscle and so if you're not doing that it's going to make it harder and it's not going to make it impossible and, and i guess that's something to outline at least from my perspective from the get-go is I think in the back in the day, I again used to think like you had to be in a surplus to gain muscle, like it was eat big to get big. And then maybe the pendulum swung the other way where people are like, oh no, don't kind of do an all you can eat diet, don't get too fat. And actually, you don't even, yeah, lean gains. You don't have to be in a surplus. You can kind of gain muscle and lose fat. Or I guess even if you're gaining muscle at a faster pace than you're losing, gaining fat, you're seeing your body fat percentage go down. And that was like the unicorn. That sounded amazing to like everyone, me included. So, um, my experience there is like I definitely have been in both extreme camps and then kind of come closer to the middle where I realized ah yeah I don't want to gain as fast as what I did in the past because I certainly got over fat and it meant I had to cut for quite a long period of time and didn't feel too good about it but equally I was spinning on my wheels for quite a long period of time just trying to kind of yeah gain tain or main gain and not to say that I didn't gain any muscle during that period of time, but considering how hard I was trying to gain muscle and I could have helped myself that little bit more by giving myself a little bit more food, which ultimately is a very easy thing to do kind of practically or like simply put, I guess we can get into some of the challenges there. Uh, yeah, I've kind of come back to like a middle ground where, yeah, there's there's definitely place for kind of a, I guess, I don't even know what the term would be, just like a, a controlled mass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things to touch on there. And isn't it funny how, we can always blame the internet and the memes within the fitness industry. And for those people who think that a meme is just like a photo with a you know caption on or whatever, it's like a meme is a socially understood concept at any point uh, in time. And the meme I think that's relevant here is uh, bulking and then you know transitioning to you know what was trendy and like commonly understood with the lean gains. Like we can always blame the internet for years worth of people spinning their wheels, and I find that 
really fascinating that um, how we all got it wrong for quite some time there. It would have been a good few years where I think everyone started to yeah push out some you know, less than uh, optimal information. But the key point there is that the massing phase is really seeing a difference in the nutritional approach and the setup of diet uh, variables compared to, say, a fat loss phase or a maintenance phase. And we'll get into the training and some of the differences there later. But over to you, Mackenzie. How do we set up nutrition for a massing phase to achieve that objective of obviously building muscle whilst keeping the ratio of fat to muscle gain uh, favorable from a body composition perspective? That's a fantastic question, and thank you for asking it. Um, so I want to take a bit of a step a step back, actually, when it comes to setting up nutrition for a muscle gain or math phase, whatever you want to call it. Now, we know, we've discussed the benefits of being in a caloric surplus, um, how that is something that contributes to an enhanced level of anabolism in conjunction with uh, protein nutrition as well as uh, training. But I think uh, one key thing actually to realize is that all because it's optimal doesn't mean it's worth it. Um, and this is also coming from a place of self-experience or my own experience is that um, sometimes we haven't really thought about whether we're willing and wanting to accept body fat gain uh, to maximize muscle mass. And sometimes we approach a phase of training and nutrition thinking, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to the muscle gain thing. But we end up kind of not really doing the calorie purpose like we should. We kind of end up doing that gain-taining thing. So I think a really important thing to do before you go about asking, how am I going to set up my calorie surplus, is actually asking, do I really want to do this? Like, why do I want to do it? What are the benefits what's the risk versus reward or the pros versus cons to me and what I really want. Um, I think if you just don't go through that phase and you just sort of rush in to say, I want to do a muscle gain phase like I once did, you end up kind of wasting a lot of time um, just kind of being in a surplus, but then not really truly committing to it. And then as Steve said, just sort of maintaining it. So once you've gotten that out of the road, well, really, I think it should be a stepwise approach where you start off with, a foundation of whole foods uh, and a baseline of adequate protein. And then once you've uh, adhered to recommendations of dietary guidelines and you've consumed enough protein to meet uh, ideal protein intake recommendations, which is usually somewhere in the order of uh, 1.6 2.2 grams per kilo, give or take, depending on where you look. Um, once you've done that, then there's an option to add those additional calories through calorie enhancers which don't necessarily provide nutritional value in the form of micronutrition or fiber or protein, but rather just provide calories or fuel for good training and then to create that caloric surplus to maximize anabolism and thus muscle gain. So start with the foundation, whole foods and protein, layer the calorie enhancers on until you've hit your um, uh, total calorie targets. And there's a few reasons for that, which we can go into if you guys would like but I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, so I think I think that's a really good approach. Um, and in terms of meeting the calorie requirements for a surplus, um, you know, the literature and uh, the consensus in the industry is anywhere from a two to five hundred calorie surplus, um, you know, with a rate of gain of somewhere between zero point five percent of body weight per month to anywhere one to two percent per 
month, depending on your level of advancement and obviously uh, your genetic potential for muscle gain. So, uh, yeah, Mackenzie, continue on there. How do we then sort of layer in all the other variables uh, for nutrition? Okay, so um, you've got your, we look at recommendations of dietary guidelines in Australia. We've got uh, 300 grams of fruit um, as a minimum per day, 400 grams of vegetables as a minimum per day. Um, and then we have six servings of whole grains. Um, so, for example, a serving of whole grains is going to be two slices of bread or uh, 30 grams uncooked of a particular grain, such as oats. Obviously, you know, there's going to be variations depending on where you are. But you want to sort of cover off those basics first and foremost. And, you know, just for the sake of an example, that might get you towards 50% of what your actual calorie targets are for you to be in appropriately sized surplus to maximize muscle gain. So how do you get those extra calories? So you've got your whole foods there, you've got your protein, you've got healthy calories, still got 50% of your calories to make up. Now, there's a few ways you could go. You could say, okay, I'm going to just eat more of the same thing. I'm going to eat more whole foods, more oats, more fruits and vegetables, more lean proteins. But the issue with that is that not only is that diet not overly palatable or there's not a higher degree of taste appeal to it, it's also quite voluminous. There's a lot of surface area and fiber. And when we're pushing caloric intake beyond our maintenance, sometimes we can experience a little bit of pushback in the form of a reduced appetite over time. Um, so one way we can actually counter this is by instead of just eating more whole foods, we can add in or to make up those extra calories. That's when we look for the lower fiber, tastier, uh, typically more processed style foods. And that's going to afford us a feasible way of getting those calories in, both from a just I have an appetite for it because, you know, generally going to gravitate towards tastier foods, but also uh, when we think about gut comfort during training and just generally not feeling like you have to force yourself at least as, force feed yourself at least as much. So it's, uh, I guess, a bit of a layering approach and it's a bit of a right tool for the job type of situation. Um, there are situations where indeed, Cocoa Pops, uh, sports drinks, those sort of things um, that most people would typically put an unhealthy label on can be exactly the right tool for the job for someone who wants to eat a little bit more calories. And I think it's a good idea to modulate how much you lean on those things relative to whole foods uh, based on your appetite relative to the calories that you're trying to eat. So for some people with a really high appetite, they might not need to rely on these more highly processed foods as much to consistently hit their calorie target. So there's a bit of an individual uh, factor there. And I guess the critique would be, well, you know, sports drinks, they're, they're bad for you. Oh, Cocoa Pops, like they're bad. It's like, well, you're already hitting your whole food foundation and hitting the recommendations specified by the dietary guidelines. There's, it's, it's at least speculative, speculative at best, that there's going to be more benefits to more whole foods, but there's definitely negatives in the form of feasibility of hitting those calorie targets and the comfort in doing so and how that might affect training performance, which is the stimulus to the thing that you're trying to actually achieve, which is muscle growth. So if that's shit, then don't expect great muscle growth. Yeah, hit the nail on the head there. I definitely think a lot of people would be better served not having that phobia. Is Jacob frozen for you as well, Mackenzie? Uh, oh no, now I can't hit. Oh no, here we go. 
I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so as I was saying, I think that's a brilliant point. And as many people know, the pendulum in the fitness industry swings, no matter the topic. And we've seen that with the clean eating to the Fafitia macros, and it's sort of come back to the middle a little bit. But I definitely think there's still a lot of people, um, you know, who are somewhat fearful to, you know, include those processed foods, um, you know, because of that, the halo effects that certain foods um, do have. Um, so that's awesome. I think we've obviously got the importance of a calorie surplus. That was the internet. <laughs> ah, damn it. I thought maybe it was me. What's that? You just froze for a bit, Jakob. Why it's freezing. Steve, over to you. Let's talk about some of the finer details around saying nutrient timing. So let's start with protein. So what are some of the considerations with uh, protein? How much do we want to have at each meal and when? And if you can then touch on peri-workout nutrition, I think that will be a good way to sort of round out this initial discussion on nutrition. Sure. Yeah, I think, and by the way, I think Mackenzie did a great job of outlining that because, yeah, I think, and like you said, Jacob, the, the pendulum has definitely swung either way. And uh, that's uh, like a whole podcast is like I could talk about so many experiences with that personally and with clients and everything. But to kind of dig into this topic, uh, I think like uh, Mackenzie laid out kind of calories and protein are your kind of uh, biggest players when you're trying to uh, kind of grow muscle. And so when we're considering protein, the most important thing to get right is hitting that end number by the end of the day so it doesn't matter if you're kind of having your protein shake post-workout and you're getting your kind of greek yogurt before bed with your casein to slowly digest through the night to try and get any kind of little optimal uh, points that you could possibly get if you're not hitting your total protein through the day you, you're sacrificing a, a huge player there so most important for people is to get that total protein through the day uh, like mackenzie quite laid out the numbers there uh, like anywhere around one gram per pound but like you said like you can go a bit above a bit below like it kind of depends on a few variables and we don't have like a, a pinpoint answer for you either also potentially depends on body fat levels but anyway uh, to talk about then how to spread that through the day in terms of nutrient timing i think what we're looking for is to maximize well obviously maximize muscle protein synthesis so that is essentially muscle growth and you therefore when you're eating protein that is an opportunity to kind of bolster that and so we want to do that several times through the day because it will kind of come down once you kind of have an amount that will kind of potentially maximize it every time you eat protein you're going to see a muscle protein synthetic response i think some people think like if you don't eat like the notorious like 20 grams of high quality protein you're not getting mps you are you're just not maximizing it um, because you're unlikely getting the leucine threshold and all the other amino acids so uh, to, to simplify, get most of your protein from high quality full amino acid sources. That's like any animal source. Um, if you're a plant-based, that's soy protein. Um, or you might have to combine like pea and rice, that sort of thing, or potentially supplement with some EAAs or even leucine. But I wouldn't recommend that because I've heard it's disgusting. I haven't actually ever tried doing that. Um, and then you want to spread that through the day through probably to maximize uh, for hypertrophy outcomes. I think probably the research tends to lean towards more like four to five through the day versus like the three up to six. But I think you're kind of, it isn't going to be practically hugely significant if you're having between three to six and spread that roughly evenly through the day, front ending your day, kind of having breakfast relatively soon after you wake up and having a protein bolus and then back ending your day. Um, doesn't have to be a casein based protein. There's no harm in doing that. There might be some upside, 
uh, probably minimal as well, but back ending your day and then having maybe a, a lunch with protein. Back ending is that different to a valend? Just so be sure. <laughs> How'd you have to make it sexual? <laughs> Only with you, Steve. So, uh, yeah, then so basically a breakfast, like a pre bed, a post workout, and like a lunch or whatever. You're hitting your numbers there. Uh, but that can be flexible. And again, like you can grow muscle with like intermittent fasting. I just, as an advanced athlete, probably going to be very challenging. And for anyone else, probably it's going to be more challenging and slower. So anyway, that's basically where I come from. A protein perspective is your kind of total protein is most important. Then try and spread that anywhere from three to six with maybe four to five servings evenly spread through the day to be kind of quote unquote, slightly more optimal. And then when we're considering kind of uh, the peri-workout nutrition, I mostly just look at this as kind of look at your carbohydrate into, or yeah, it depends if you've, you, some people may only have a protein and calorie goal, which I think is highly appropriate for the majority of people. If you are like a very serious bodybuilder or someone who's highly competitive, you might want to think about potentially kind of uh, having a higher carbohydrate intake and maybe slightly lower fat, but still getting your bases covered. I think this theoretical rationale for that, I don't know if I could hold my hat on it, but I certainly wouldn't go keto. Uh, if, if that's something someone was considering, I don't think that's best for performance outcomes. And so I would just make sure to place a large chunk of your carbohydrates pre and post-workout, potentially even peri, like you said, you can have an energy drink kind of within your session or like a carbohydrate-based drink if you've got long, high-volume sessions or you're struggling to take calories in. That can also be a great way to do it. You can top off glycogen stores, replenish glycogen stores, potentially a little bit quicker if you do it that way. Uh, maintain blood glucose a little bit better and that could potentially help performance within the gym focus within the gym and i think that's a sound approach and then you just don't want to have tons of fat and fiber like pre-workout like Mackenzie said if you eat all like quote-unquote kind of clean wholesome foods uh you're going to struggle like within your sessions feeling bloated and digestion is going to be slow so don't have tons of fiber and fat close to the workout and potentially avoid having high amounts of that post-workout too to kind of get out the way of kind of potentially restoring glycogen a little bit faster if that's something that seems to be important for you um and that's that's the, the basis of what the way i approach it is fairly simple like spread that protein through the day four to six feedings and then just don't have tons of fat and fiber around your workout and prioritize carbs at that time i i think beyond that can get into like yeah. and it can just cause people a little bit more stress and toll and lack of like consistency and adherence yeah, 100%. I think in terms of the benefits, the details outside of what you've just outlined there, I think have far less reward for way greater efforts. Um, but that, they're fantastic recommendations and super rule of thumb uh, that I advise uh, my clients and that uh, I use in practice, just 25% of your total daily carbohydrate intake. Uh, I thought I froze there. Um, on either side of the workouts and then you know, something around 1.5 grams um, of carbohydrates per kilo of body weight within three hours after your workout if you don't want to use the uh, percentage of your total daily intake. But fantastic uh, recommendations there, Steve. And I guess once we've set up the nutrition side of things, the next fundamental step is to measure and assess um, the outcome, Right. And obviously, we're going to get into training uh, soon because that's a huge piece of the puzzle here. Uh, but let's discuss the metrics that we use to measure. Mackenzie, we've touched on this in previous podcasts um, in terms of how we assess uh, body composition uh, practically and pragmatically. So without going into, I guess, the pros and cons of different techniques, 
let's attack, you know, what are the measurement techniques that somebody should be using during a massing phase to assess whether or not uh, they're getting the desired outcome. So assuming the desired outcome is to gain muscle size uh, and muscle strength. So the muscle strength one I feel is quite straightforward and that is, am I progressing in my performance in the gym? And that can be approached in a few ways, whether you try and look at a certain performance reps, uh, a load time sets or something, or you just pick a lift and, you know, do that at the start of a, a meso cycle um, for a given amount of reps and see how many more reps you could do for that weight or if you could do more weight for the same amount of reps. Um, that can be a, a gauge of, of obviously performance. But I actually also think personally that it is one of the best proxies to muscle gain. Now, it's not necessary that uh, gains in performance are always a product of increased muscle size. There are, or related in that way, rather, like whichever way it comes first, chicken egg, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, when we think about the other ways we can assess muscle size, there's a lot of issues with them. Um, for example, muscle gain is a really slow process. The incremental change over a week, a month, might even not e might not even be detectable through the the measurement error factor of a DEXA scan, DEXA scan, which is considered the gold standard. And then we have other things like skin folds. Um, I think they're pretty cool as long as you're not trying to calculate body fat percentage with some kind of formula and just looking at the sum of sites taken. Um, and an average weekly scale weight that's pretty awesome, but obviously scales have their issue. Um, and then there's photos, which is something that we discussed, but there's also issues there um, as there's a lot of subjective uh, thoughts and feelings that might cloud one's vision of what's actually happened. And, you know, I think personally, um, not as a bodybuilder or not as a bodybuilding coach, someone who doesn't work in that space, I tend to try and like, I would never or very rarely uh, actively recommend using gale weight um, or photos or anything that looks at body uh, appearance um, unless for example it's a athlete in a certain weight class sport in which case it's, it's a real factor but for someone trying to gain muscle uh, or doing a muscle gain phase uh, usually I would kind of I wouldn't steer away necessarily but I wouldn't be the one to say hey you should measure or we should you know look at measuring this rather it would I I'd try and steer the conversation more towards like a performance outcome so focusing on what the body does as opposed to how the body looks. Um, and that's for uh, various reasons, which I, I won't get into right now. That's because you're a woke social justice warrior looking after people's uh, mental health. Um, and we hate you for that. Um, no, but I think you're right. I, I would say that I disagree with some aspects of that, but I totally understand that you work with a very different demographic to what Steve and I work with. So there's absolute yeah. utility to that approach. And I think not, not only that, I think the way that you frame that is actually a very good thing for a lot of people to focus on the performance side of things over the outcome, right? Because we're measuring outcomes with scale weight, circumference measures, progress photos. Like that's not a um, process or performance-based measure, right? That's an outcome measure. We know the difference between uh, outcome goals versus performance and process-related goals, right? So I think there's a lot of utility in that perspective and looking at measurements through that lens and framing it in that way for athletes. The only addition I would have there is that training performance, um, I think for muscle growth, obviously has to improve because the larger muscle relative to its size can produce more force. 
uh, meaning that it can lift the same weight for more reps, as you said, or more reps with the same load, provided that you keep set volume and your proximity to failure relatively constant, because it, changing either of those variables, in my opinion, is either just doing more work in the case of adding sets, or if you're just training closer to failure, you're just making training harder. So that's not really observing the progressive overload or uh, increases in fitness capacity, which are muscle growth in our case here. But I think that needs to be in conjunction with uh, measurement on the scale because uh, sometimes these phenomena can be very tricky to measure with only one measurement technique. And you need to bring multiple different techniques to measure the outcome because there are some pitfalls to just using training performance. For example, if you're tra changing exercises, neurological adaptations, you know, fluctuations in fitness fatigue dynamics um, and readiness in a given session can all affect training performance. So that might on its own not reliably tell you that you're gaining muscle because your performance might go down for some period of time. If you, um, you know, going through a stressful period, you might be training with more volume, changing exercises, whatever the case may be. And if scale weight's going up or your circumference measures are going up, um, that can help give you a better understanding of what's going on at the level of the muscle um, because performance is influenced by so many factors. Um, that's my take on it. I'll hand it over to Steve or Mackenzie if you've got anything to add to that. But I definitely agree that the lens that you look at measuring progress through is really important. And I think there should be a huge focus on the process and performance-based goals instead of outcome goals, as Mackenzie alluded to. Steve? Yeah, I um, I would definitely reiterate that in terms of, I, I like that lens as well that Mackenzie looked it through in terms of like focusing on the process and kind of the things that are going to lead to the outcome goal versus leading on kind of are we there yet in terms of muscle growth and I've had clients who have taken uh, kind of circumference measurements every week and I'm like ah oh, don't do that because every time like I, I never recommend it and every time they do that they get quite stressed out about it because they're like oh my waist measurement's gone up by this much or whatever like and I'm like in a week you're not gaining that amount of body fat where you're going to see an inch added to your waist unless we're doing something incredibly wrong with your, our nutrition here or like you're likely bloated or the holding water or more than likely human measurement error and so uh, i i completely agree with you there jacob in terms of trying to like triangulate so use many of these tools to to see if they're all moving in the same direction to give you an idea of okay so weights going up progress in the gym's going up like circumference measurements photos they're all pointing in the same direction more than likely we're ticking that box of muscle growth because uh i remember talking to ben house on uh, my podcast about this and I mean, this is part circling all the way back to the start where like a lot of it's influenced through social media because I think a lot of it's just driven down from like enhanced bodybuilders initially and now like like my scientists have gone into field and things. But we have like two studies that have ever looked on like calorie surpluses and neither of them are particularly good or applicable. So it's hard to like that. Smart daddies who have to figure shit out because it's all for them, right? exactly so it's it's just and ben said in the podcast is like as a especially as like a pretty well-trained bodybuilder but for us guys like we often won't even know if we've gained muscle until we take it to the stage again and look at photos or compare stage weights because it, it's so challenging to truly know it and even like you said strength can be like fluctuate quite like readily even down to maybe you improve your technique on this lift whatever it might be so um, there's a lot of almost I don't like to say trusting the process because it makes it sound like you have to trust the things that we know grow muscle but so long as uh, people are eating and they're slowly gaining weight at a, an appro appropriate pace and uh, they're seeing their performance in the gym over time go up or rather they are training hard in the gym with 
what would be appropriate amounts of work and not excessive amounts like i'm almost like you you just have to keep watering that natty plant <laughs> and it it will slowly be growing over time you just have to keep the sunlight on there the water on there and you won't see it growing but until you check on at a much longer and uh, later date and i think that's a really good point there is like and i know that mckenzie will agree with this because we've had this conversation it's like the issue with these tools such as um scale weight forest photos is just like scale like when people measure their scale weight it's like their perspective of what that actually means is usually the problem but then the problem is also enhanced by the frequency of the measurement right um and that's where i think you know with progress photos and circumference measurements in a massing phase like these things should be done very infrequently like they're not tools that you need to use very often because they won't pick up on much you know over the course of you know one two three weeks they're things you should use um you know three six months you know at a time um scale weight possibly a little bit more uh regularly but yeah i think there's a huge element of like the frequency at which you um use these tools that plays into i guess you know how potentially damaging they can be to you know somebody's enjoyment of the process um because as we know if somebody's you know not seeing that progress and and they're getting disheartened because they're not seeing any changes um it can really detriment their effort towards the process right um, and I think, you know, on that, Steve, I think, yeah, trusting your pro- trust the process is a throwaway comment for a lot of people. But if you've got a really good process, you have every reason to trust it, right? And I think that's the difference, right? It's like this similar quote, like, Jack of all trades, master of none. Um, but if you're only a master of one trade, right, you're a connector of none. So there's like always different ways to add on to, you know, statements like that, I think. Um, and trusting the process is important. But we need to make sure we've got good processes and reliable ones in place because then we can trust it. Um, and that comes with experience and obviously, um, you know, some expertise and knowledge in your process. Mac, I can, I've can i seen you there. You're chewing at the bit to chime in here. You're dancing around. No, I'm not chewing a bit. I'm just chewing it as coffee, mate. <laughs> Steve, that's an odd um, uh, term for like um, ready and eager. I've heard of it, actually. Oh, you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold me back. Hold me back. Hold me back. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make an additional point um, in regards to how we assess progress. And I want to be a woke person here. Um, <laughs> um, so you mentioned there that the issue with scale weight is often our thoughts or how we perceive that outcome. And I think this opens the door to actually another avenue of um, the progress assessment, which can actually be how we feel and our behaviors. So we can actually use adherence to certain behaviors as a means of progress so for example uh you know pre-bed protein snack i've, I've recently i've got a client who uh, is looking at gaining muscle the amount of uh, protein feedings is consistently being consumed is sort of on that lower end of the ideal range so the target habit uh, discussed was uh, an additional protein snack the the action plan specified pre-bed now adherence to that habit can actually be a source of progress in conjunction or on top of other measures of muscle growth and performance. And the good thing about this is it's not fixated on appearance and rather at a behavior that can make someone feel good about what they're doing. Um, And also because it's a frequent thing, it creates frequent opportunities to celebrate a win. And when we feel positive about our abilities or our self-efficacy improves, we're generally going to be more motivated 
for self-efficacy and motivation. So there's a, a link there. And we're probably going to stay in the game for a little bit longer. We stay in the game for longer. Guess what? As a product of that, in the background, we've gained more muscle. Because as I'm sure all of you guys would agree, muscle growth requires a, a long period of time ticking the boxes. You know, it, unlike a fat loss phase, you can't do a mini bulk or a mini mass. You can do a mini cut, but a mini bulk doesn't really work. You know, no one's going to be doing a four-week. I want to see bulk. you try. I want to see some anecdotal evidence of your four-week mini bulk, Mac. Maybe, maybe next time I'm somewhere where there's a gym, I'll have to do a mini bulk because, you know, I've got to get my training in somehow. I really, like that. I really like that. I think we should have different measures in place. Obviously, training measurements are important in terms of performance. I think some form of scale weights and visual circumference measurements also uh, important as well. But on top of that, right, we need to have those, you know, behavior um, targets that we're focusing on because essentially it's like, yes, training's one behavior that we need to do, and that's a really big one. Uh, but all the other behaviors, you know, whether it's, yeah, protein feedings, whether it's, you know, meeting your calorie surplus, whether it's, you know, your peri-workout nutrition, I think, you know, Steve, a huge, um, you know, benefit to the pre-workout and post-workout meal as you were discussing, um, you know, performance-wise. I think from a behavioral perspective, People aren't focusing on that enough because it, it can really anchor your nutrition around the workout. Um, and we know that people often feel better after they train. So, you know, if they have a, you know, quote unquote on plan or optimal meal, it's like it can set them up for subsequent meals. And with a lot of, uh, you know, building muscle and you know, achieving any goal, it's about momentum. And I think, you know, we can create a lot of momentum in that, you know, peri-workout window. Um, so I think, yeah, you've got to have those behavior targets as well. And as Max said, Ticking those off regularly over time um, is ultimately what's going to lead to muscle. And that takes care of those outcome measurements. And I think um, in, incorporating all of those is uh, super beneficial. Um, but Steve, let's talk about now um, in terms of rate of gain and adjusting you know, the plan or nutrition, um, what are your, I guess, steps when somebody reaches a plateau or stall, they're not gaining weight on the scale or they're not seeing that performance in the gym. How do you attack um, a stall? And I guess, how do you define a stall uh, in a massing phase? Cool. So yeah, if I attack the kind of body weight nutritional stall, or rather I see that as, yeah, um, something that you would um, manage through nutrition generally, I kind of think about it this way in terms of if you are coming out of a mini cut or a longer dieting period, then there's probably going to be like more regular adaptations that are going to need to take place with nutrition because your metabolism will adapt upwards to that new nutrition that's coming in because it's probably adapted slightly downwards during that diet phase. And so you'll probably need to increase food more regularly. You might not need to and always face it off like scale weight changes. The number of, I don't know, this is a separate topic, but the number of like questions I get, it's like, I'm hungry in my mass phase. Should I increase food? I'm like, don't base it off appetite <laughs> like uh go go back to mckenzie and where he said eat, eat more of that kind of uh, wholesome food that's going to fill you up don't kind of try and fill the void through just gaining a faster pace that's not the way to do it you want to base it off scale weight changes but um it's then having that kind of foresight of okay so if i'm in a surplus the body doesn't readily adapt to it that quickly once i've been in it for a while so it should see me for a long period of time so we're on a diet phase you might look every one to two weeks for someone you're not looking every one to two weeks to make an adjustment to your nutrition on a mass gaining phase. You're looking every at most two weeks to every like four weeks plus. And so 
because the rate of change is also much smaller we're not looking for like where you might change a percent of body weight on a weekly basis during a diet phase it's like a half a percent at most during a, a mass gaining phase so you need to look at a, a longer time window so i'm looking at kind of bi-weekly averages making sure that they're moving within that kind of window and i quite like having a, a wider range for rate of gain where it's like as long as it's acceptable kind of within this range we're not trying to target exactly 0.5 or exactly 0.25 like try and land somewhere within this range or rather every two weeks like that's 0.5 to a percent for for a lot of people so anywhere within there is totally acceptable we just want to make sure we're kind of in that buffer zone and then if we can say okay it's been two weeks or we haven't seen you moving in this direction and there's no like outside circumstances that could be impacting that because uh, off seasons are long or just like gaining phases are long like you said and people's lifestyles and things are variable and so you have to make sure that it isn't someone that one of those outside variables that have impacted it like they're eating out all the time and i don't know that could be making it look different to how it should be on paper in a diet phase often your food is very very similar like day to day whereas in a mass gaining phase it isn't always so i like the number of people i work with where I can't use a two-week average. I have to look longer than that and, and make sure that I'm making the right call. But when I have seen that it seems to be slowing or it looks like it's maybe come to a round of maintenance, I'm maybe just adjusting 100 calories and then seeing where it goes from there. And then if, again, it's not moving after a week or two, I might then push another 100 because it doesn't take much to move the needle for the surplus that we're trying to achieve because it's a relatively small surplus. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I generally look at more like trying to make sure that someone's moving within that rate of gain is two to four weeks averages how's it trending over time make sure that it has actually due to not nutritional variability and then just small calorie uh bumps to keep them within that range over time yeah i like it i like it a lot mackenzie anything you want to add to that um probably not actually um I think the first, uh, one point actually is, I think when there is a plateau on the scales in either direction, whether you're going for weight loss or weight gain, I think it's probably often, but not always maybe, a good idea to not jump the gun and understand that there are many different factors that influence body mass at a certain time point. Many of them um, can fluctuate quite uh significant amounts on a day-to-day basis and they are independent to changes in uh, muscle mass and body fat mass so if you have say a seven-day period of a plateau and i don't think it's prudent to say oh i'm not in a surplus anymore um i need to increase my calories uh because if you do that you might be chopping the ceiling down of how long you could continue to gain weight and muscle before you need to implement a mini cut because you get a little bit too fluffy and that can be suboptimal for actual muscle gain but also there's the obvious issues with appearance and in the the case of athletes in gravitational sports crossfitters for example um you know you're gaining body fat that's going to weigh you down and impact or impair your performance um so yeah just kind of taking a moment to not jump the gun should we give it a little bit more time should we wait wait another week to see what body weight trends do and often they end up sort of playing ball um it just might not be linear and you know they always people say progress is never linear i think that certainly applies to a muscle gain phase as well 
Yeah, I definitely think that's an important point because there are so many confounding variables that influence scale weight, as a lot of people will know. Um, you know, sleep, meal timing, you know, macronutrient intake, fiber intake, activity, stress, hormones, like there are a multitude of things that can wreak havoc with your scale weight. So in a massing phase, it's really important to give it a little bit longer before you make an adjustment because, um, yeah, there, there can be some fluctuations and obviously muscle growth takes a lot of time to, um, you know, occur at a physiological level, like, I think that's what people don't appreciate is like you're literally packing on protein throughout the day and you know unpacking it and you're packing on sweet fuck all in terms of absolute weight like you know we're talking i think you know for most people they'd be lucky to get 50 to 100 grams a week like that's that's a great result um so you're not going to see a lot of scale weight increase from muscle mass um, most of it's going to be due to the amount of food you're eating the calorie surplus the fat glycogen holding some extra water Yep, you get that muscle as well. Uh, so, you know, increase in um, gut residue, all of these things. Um, so you do need to understand there are so many things that can influence your weight independent of the actual muscle that you're building. Um, so you have to be really patient with that and not jump the gun when you're making those assessments. Um, I think that's, um, yeah, really important to understand. So great points, guys. Um, and let's turn to, I think we're going to have to do a, a part two potentially on training because this has been quite a juicy discussion. Let's talk about some of the challenges uh, nutritionally uh, to keep it on a trend with the rest of the discussion uh, when people are massing. So Steve, I know that uh, you're somebody who struggles when the food intake gets uh, excessively high um, and you've come from a background where gaining weight has been quite difficult for you. Um, so I think, yeah, yeah, you're probably the, uh, the man to discuss this. So have at it challenges during a massing phase. Oh, and I just want to reiterate with Mackenzie there, like his point about like not jumping the the gun makes uh, a ton of sense there. So uh, I would just reiterate that as well. Like I I have clients who are like, oh, I haven't gained weight in a week, two weeks, whatever it might be. And I'm always in favor of, right, so like nutrition is just permissive of the training we're doing. As long as you're training really well and your training is going very, very well, like let's kind of just see it out. Uh, And sometimes people even get these like, um, I, I guess them like you can almost look at them as a, a kind of a uh, what's it called a spurt in weight gain like it's a growth spurt but in weight gain where they just suddenly come up and then they hit a new high and they just like stall out at that for a little bit so I think the, the key there is just like you said patience uh, and then in regards to yeah nutrition during off season actually kind of fundamental what I see most common with people is they don't do what McKenzie su- suggested in terms of having a baseline of like meeting the nutritional priorities that we have to hit. They hit their protein, but they're not getting that fruit. They're not getting that veg in. They're not getting those whole grains in. Their fiber is pitiful. And they're just going, oh, mass gaining means I move to Cocoa Pops only or whatever it is, you know? And they just start eating all this food and then they are hungry. And then they're wondering why they're not adhering to their diet. They're eating out often and not really considering it because they're like, oh, I'm in a surplus. And then their gaining phase is now half the time it should be because they've gained at double the rate that they should. So I often see people get really lax during their gaining phases because they're so long. But you have to keep a lot of those kind of principal habits that you have during a cut phase and obviously don't kind of keep yourself on a leash like you might on a cut. You want to be a bit more free and flexible, but don't go all the way over there. So that's one side I see. And then in regards to, yeah, my issue... um, it seems to be, I, I used to talk about settling points and like a settling range, but now it seems to be actually it's a kind of dual intervention model where we have like an upper and lower 
level of body weight or body fat where we feel our best. And in a masculinity phase, you want to basically be within this window where you feel your best, where it's kind of, I guess, quote unquote, homeostasis for your body, where it's comfortable because you can train your best where you feel your best. And some people like myself um, are relatively lean when they're within that window and they knock upon, upon that kind of uh, higher intervention point a little bit sooner. And it's a more of a, a wall than like a, I don't know, like an easy thing that they can just move through. A lot of people just move through that very, very easily and they gain like huge amounts of body weight very comfortably. So for some people like me who, I don't know, quote unquote, a hard gainer or people just don't have those appetites where it kind of makes sense to keep pushing up because if they want to push the needle of uh, body um, muscle mass, then they do want to do that. Then it is a case of, like Mackenzie said, like don't just eat all whole grains and all fruits, veggies and have tons of fiber. You reduce those and introduce easier ways to get food in. So it might even be looking at, okay, I need this many fruits, but can I move towards dried fruit can i move towards fruit juices smoothies i need to get these many veggies in but can i move towards soups and other ways uh, purees to get those in and then maybe i shouldn't eat my oats i should move to cream of rice uh, as a bodybuilder or even cocoa pops like the same thing really uh, move towards these other foods that are going to just make it easier to get food in more liquid foods more palatable foods salt food use sauces that sort of thing can can go a long way to helping people and even looking down the line of like is there any FODMAPs like is there anything within your diet that is just causing you distress and you could look at like have I got any of these high FODMAP foods in my diet and that's causing me a problem because sometimes that can be it so it's just kind of being a little bit clever with palatability food volume and then just seeing if there are any like actual digestive issues that you're creating from some of your food selection and maybe you are just hitting above this like intervention point and that's where mini cuts can come in because they're super handy for just uh reducing body fat but for that person you're not really doing that it's to increase appetite and i can talk from experience just like two weeks of harsh calorie restriction my appetite is in a much better place i do it for another two weeks and i bought myself another like four months of good appetite with massing so those are some of the strategies i'd be looking at when someone's kind of struggling to get that food in on a mass gaining phase yeah i i think that's brilliant and we essentially do all the things you know completely in the opposite way to when we're cutting, right? It's like it's just yeah. the reverse. Um, you know, walking that hedonic scale, um, you know, going back down essentially, um, you know, making things uh, more energy dense, more palatable, lower fiber, all that kind of jazz. And I think, yeah, it's a matter of being clever with your dietary choices when the hunger and appetite um, you know, become an issue and potentially increasing your frequency as well. Um, I found to be a good strategy so that you're consuming smaller meals um, but very good points there, Steve. And guys, we have uh, run out of time. Mackenzie's got to bounce. So that is all for this installment of the Education Portal Roundtable on massing. I think we're going to have to get the boys back on to discuss training. So leave that with me. Hopefully we can organize the time. But I hope you all enjoyed everything uh, that we covered and you learned a lot. And thank you, guys. We'll speak to you all next time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, you guys.